I'm Rafa from Spain. This is Doctor Who Podcast and you are most welcome. Well, Season 7B might be done and dusted, but it certainly isn't for the DWP listeners. The feedback has been pouring in, and Michelle and myself devote another episode to your awesome thoughts on this latest batch of stories. So 7B or not 7B, that's the question we'll be looking at today, and it's great to be back with you, Trev. And it's great to be back with you, Michelle, even after that terrible pun, but uh, yeah, it's uh, (laughs) (laughs) wonderful to be back in the camper van. So I've been listening to the podcast Lo These Many Weeks and hearing all your opinions, and is it true that you're the man with the shard of ice in his heart? Yes, it's true, everyone. I hate everything about new Doctor Who. Even the best story in existence can't make me happy, even when I was positive about Name of the Doctor about a week or two ago, people are still writing in, calling me Grumpy Trev. I don't know what to do anymore, Michelle. What have I got to do? <laughs> I don't know. Let's let's take a look at the <laughs> mailbag and see how many more of those we can find. Yes, indeed. The mailbag beckons us. It, it's calling us from the other side of the room, right next to the uh, those weird-shaped kitchen appliances. And we have a bit of feedback from Chris in New Zealand, who has a bit of a natter about In the Name of the Doctor. Chris Gardner here in New Zealand. If anyone has ever written a love letter to classic Doctor Who showrunner Stephen Moffat's The Name of the Doctor is it. Opening it on Gallifrey as the first Doctor steals his beloved TARDIS was a big shout out to those of us who have been with the show before it returned in 2005. And placing Clara there was pure genius. After a mixed bag of a season, Moffat shows just what he is capable of. There was enough in the pre-credit sequence to satiate the appetite of long-time fans, with Clara meeting the first seven incarnations of our favourite Time Lord, but there was much more to come. I loved everything about this episode except its length. I would have liked to have seen it played out in two or three parts. But then again, I suppose that's what we're going to get with the 50th anniversary special in November. I especially love the giant TARDIS doubling as the Doctor's mausoleum. If the name of the Doctor bordered on magic in places, so what? The Doctor's been known to go by the name of Merlin. I can't wait to find out how John Hurt's Doctor fits in. Maybe an epic movie. Well, Chris, I like the way you describe uh, In the Name of the Doctor as a love letter. Uh, It really was a fun episode to watch. I agree that... uh, the way they placed Clara back at uh, right at the beginning and in the other places was was pretty clever. It's interesting for me though. I'm of two minds about in the name of the Doctor. On the one hand, it was a very enjoyable story. I thoroughly liked it. I was very moved by some of the emotional scenes at the end with River and with Vastra and with Strax uh, and Jenny. I appreciated what they did with putting Clara in the timeline of the Doctor, while at the same time resenting a little bit that now Clara was supposed to have been involved throughout the timeline of the Doctor. I don't think the next time that I think about the Doctor running away from Gallifrey, I I want to picture Clara there. (laughs) Even though I I respect and and kind of appreciate and admire the the cleverness with which it was done. So I'm really of two minds of this one. On the one hand, I, I enjoyed it a lot. 
On the other hand, I'm going to, you know, I think it's going to be kind of like that line about the doctor being half human. I think I'm just going to kind of ignore certain parts of continuity, like the idea of Clara being everywhere. Yeah, I, I think this is definitely very much a, a fan love letter. St- Stephen Moffat has written the ultimate tribute to Doctor Who as our uh, Series 7B finale. And and I think that's too part of the reason why I'm seeing a lot of comments from people who respond to the negative uh, criticism of this story and just say, accept it, accept it and move on. I mean, we're supposed to accept that a 65 million year old Silurian can time travel in dreams and we, we're meant to accept they have the technology to uh, pull River out of her computer. I mean, there, there are just things in this story that you're just meant to go, they're happening on screen, don't judge it, don't try and explain it. You know, the story's already moved on anyway. I, I think that's one thing that fans are really trying to drive home, I suppose, that you're just meant to sit back and enjoy the story. Now, for a lot of fans, that, that, that might work really, really well. For this particular fan, it doesn't. I, I like things to make sense as I've probably said on a few thousand occasions in the past. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a um, story of very differing opinions uh, amongst the fans and, uh, you know, dare I say it, the uh, not-we among us. Well, and, and Chris mentions the idea that the Doctor has been known as Merlin, one of the other names of the Doctor, and so I, I think that's a, a little bit of a reference to the fairy tale nature that... Uh, Oh, that Moffat likes to to put into some of his stories. But uh, Chris Mm. isn't the only one who enjoyed this. Maybe we should also hear from Rafa from Spain. For me, this is the best season finale since the show's return in 2005. I love the episode as a whole. I love the story. I love the acting. I love the sets. We see Trenzalor at last. I liked River's return, and I want to know why she is mentally linked to Clara. I hope we get to see her again so that we can understand how they are connected. I like the villain, although in a, its appearance in the episode is a bit short. The great intelligence's plan to destroy everything the Doctor ever did is wicked. About Vastrogenian Strax, what can I say? I love this gang. Maybe a spin-off is a bit too much for them, but they burn all of our affection. Strax is a great character, and seeing him forget about Vastra and wanting to kill her is superb. And we finally get to know who Clara is. She's been there for the Doctor every time he needed her help, even if he didn't notice. I know this has already been said about other companions, but Clara is the definitive companion. In very few episodes, we have seen her evolving from a clumsy girl who didn't know why the Doctor was so interested in her, to a brave friend who puts her life in danger in order to save the Doctor's life. When she enters the Doctor's timeline and then he goes after her, we get to learn the Doctor's greatest secret, which isn't his name, but his own past. We get to see John Hurt, who happens to be another incarnation of the Doctor but an incarnation he has tried to avoid to remember. Let's see if in the 50th special he is a villain or not. This I can't imagine yet. I also love the way all the other Doctors were included in the episode, not only with the old footage, but also when we see them running in the Doctor's timeline. And this, leads, this leads me to my final thoughts. I think I have a theory on how Eleven and Ten get to work together in the 50th special. I think that Clara and Eleven meet Rose and Ten in the Doctor's timeline and ask them for help to stop whatever John Hart is up to. This seems quite logical for me. I'm looking forward to hearing what your theories are. Wow, best season finale for you of the of the new series. That is high praise. And, uh, you know, it's interesting you ask about why was... Uh, River Song mentally linked to Clara. You know, I, I don't think there's any real deep ongoing meaning to that. It, it, I got the sense from the dialogue that it was it was a conference call and that she simply hadn't closed the connection, as it were. Not that there was an, an underlying link there, but just, uh, you know, just like talking on Skype, that uh, 
you may have three or four people talking on Skype and a couple of them may leave and a couple of them may still be on the line. And uh, Definitely. I, I think they use that concept of the, I suppose, conference call metaphor and, and they really drive it home on a lot of occasions. I, I was almost expecting one of the characters to say that they're on hold at some point, but uh, it, I, I think it's an easy way for the audience to understand what was going on in that room, that they're, that they're in this virtual conference call, i.e., like, like you said, Michelle, just like a Skype call, like we are now, where you know we're talking out there across the internet in in this virtual room, in this virtual camper van, as it were. Well, I, he, uh, Rafa also talks about who Clara is, and I gotta say, I like the way her story came to a resolution. I like finding out who Clara is, and I like the idea that she is a regular girl who just happens to be brave and loyal and a friend of the doctor and does the right thing at the right time. I'm, I was really pleased that uh, she didn't turn out to be something more convoluted than that. It, the one other thing that Rafa mentions is his theory that Clara and Doctor Number 11 will meet the Tenth Doctor uh, there in the timeline where they are and be able to ask the Tenth Doctor and Rose for help, thereby bringing them into uh, the finale, or, or rather the season anniversary. Trev, do you have any other thoughts about how we're going to get the Tenth Doctor and Rose into the anniversary special? Don't think it needs to be anything as complicated as that, to be perfectly honest. I, I was always quite a fan of the way the the, uh, the Second and Sixth Doctor met in the Two Doctors during the Colin Baker era. It was by accident. It wasn't because, you know, they were time-scooped or that, you know, the Time Lords were sending them off on a mission. They just happened to be pretty much in the same space at the same time, and they crossed paths, which you would think the Doctor would do more often with his other selves, because mm. he spends so much time on Earth, for example, so you think he'd be running into previous and future incarnations of himself all the time. So I, I don't think there's going to be anything wrong with, you know, so suddenly coming to the 50th anniversary and having this, what I would assume will be some sort of quite comical scene with the Matt Smith Doctor coming across the David Tennant Doctor and Rose somewhere. Well, just to mix it up a little bit, we've received a bit of written feedback, and uh, honestly, guys, we didn't really know what to do with this when we received it, because we haven't received written feedback for so long. We'll be meant to read it out. We'll be meant to retype it. We're just so used to our feedback being in audio these days. But nevertheless, Taylor from the US has uh, sent in a bit of written feedback to us, and he says, Hi, my name is Taylor. I'm 17 years old and a major Doctor Who fan. Just to comment on the point that Trev made regarding the big, bold lettering introducing John Hurt. I'm going to say from a fan point of view that I thought it was very good. Think of it this way. Fans have always thought that the Doctor's biggest secret was his name. Then the Doctor states that his name, his real name, is not the point. Already my head is in a million different places at once. Then he says this mysterious figure is his secret. Again, my head is all over the board. So who is this guy? Cue dramatic turnaround and boom. His biggest secret is himself. Now with the question regarding his name both answered and unanswered, and our heads swimming with all the new questions regarding his secret, we Whovians, oh, gee, I hate that word, Whovians, I really hate <laughs> it, have to wait until November 23rd to find out who John Hurt, otherwise known as the Doctor, who he is with regards to the Doctor's timeline and regenerations. Yeah, Taylor, I, I would tend to agree with you there, mate. We, we have a lot to look forward to in the anniversary special. I, I think we've said it before on the cast that I, I'm of the personal opinion that the Hurt Doctor is the forgotten Ninth Doctor, that... We're going to be getting some bit of time war resolution. I, I don't think it's going to be a huge part of it, but I, I think it would be an absolutely awesome storyline that the other incarnations of the Doctor have basically shunned the John Hurt Doctor for what he did 
presumably to resolve the Time War when he had to destroy the Time Lords and destroy the Daleks in that final battle. So I, I think the other Doctors are ashamed of that Doctor and have basically written him out of existence. And I, I think that would be an awesome timeline and an awesome story. Why don't we return to another piece of audio feedback? And we've got Mike from Illinois who uh, includes a fairly specific question in his feedback. Let's listen to that. Hello, this is Turlo81, a.k.a. Mike from Champaign, Illinois in the USA. I'd just like to give a little bit of feedback on the name of the doctor. 90% of what I would say has already been said by you guys. Excellent review. Excellent episode. The part that gets me is toward the end. They explain that when they go into the tomb, the white pillar of light, is the collection of the timelines of the Doctor up until he dies. When Clara goes into the t- uh, to the light, she's split apart and she's on every t- every part of that on all the Doctor's timelines. Later on, when she says she's done, she's deposited into another place. I'm assuming the present timeline of the present Doctor. When he gets ready to take her back and they turn around and they see John Hurt, she goes, I've seen all 11 of your faces and I don't recognize him. Well, she doesn't say, I've seen all of your incarnations, or she doesn't say, I've seen 13 of your incarnations, or she doesn't say anything like that. She's very specific. I've seen 11 faces. Why didn't she see any doctors from the future? There's only the fastest explanation is that she didn't see it because they weren't there. Does that mean that Matt Smith's doctor doesn't regenerate and just dies? It's just this big gray area for me, and I was wondering, I don't think it's because he's dead and there are no further incarnations. Any theories? Thank you. Well, Mike, I think you're right on target when you comment about the fact that Clara said that she saw 11 faces, and I think you're right on that the implication then is that that the, the Matt Smith incarnation of the Doctor somehow is the one that died at Trenzalore. I mean, it would explain why the TARDIS is the same TARDIS that that we see during uh, the latest incarnation of the Doctor. I don't think uh, that's a mistake. I think we're supposed to pick up on that and we're supposed to think about that. I wonder whether as a part of the anniversary special that might be explored, whether there's something that the Doctor needs to do to, to save himself or something that saves him from what was a death at Trenzalore and then allows him to continue on uh, with the, the future incarnations uh, on into uh, the next 50 years. Possibly, possibly. It probably also would explain why the old decaying TARDIS is the same TARDIS as the current 11th Doctor in terms of the interior. Um, one would think that this, if this was a future Doctor, say the 12th or 13th, he would have got round to reconfiguring it like the Doctor always does, um, you know, to suit his own personality and style. So there's there's probably something in there about um, the 11th Doctor will actually die at Trenzalore, but then we'll be able to continue on in some, dare I say it, timey-wimey fashion. Well, our next bit of feedback is all the way across the other side of the world. Well, for me it is anyway, from Heiko in Germany. Hi, this is Heiko from Germany. First of all, I love your podcast. I like how you always have such a positive view on all the episodes. Especially Tom's opinions are very close to mine most of the time. About the last episode, The Name of the Doctor, it was absolutely great. It was a celebration of the last 50 years of Doctor Who, and it was so much better than anyone realistically could have expected. Moffat delivered even his all-doctors-in-one-story thing he hinted at and gave us one extra Doctor. It seems to me that Moffat takes RTD's idea and tries to do them right. Pandorica, the Big Bang, had the same core idea as Last of the Time Lords. It was about thinking the Doctor back into existence. Moffat did it much better in my opinion. The name of the Doctor was essentially the same core idea as Bad Wolf, 
but it made so much more sense. I love the Moffat era. It's like the Cardinal era all over again, but it pays off, and it doesn't weaken the mysterious aura of the Doctor. That's all from me. Bye. And sorry for the bad English. Mate, you have no problems at all with regards to your English. It is absolutely perfect. It's probably even better than mine. Um, I, I love a lot of your points there. Name of the Doctor is a celebration of the 50th anniversary. And I, I love your comment about it takes what RTD tried to do during his time as showrunner, but Moffat does it right. I did get that bad wolf vibe with this, that we're basically seeing something which we've seen throughout the whole season resolved at the end, you know, sort of done backwards, basically, which is the same thing that we had with Rose during Bad Wolf, that we saw Bad Wolf all throughout Series 1, but it was only explained at the end of the season. And again, we're seeing all these Claras through Series 7 and Series 7B, but we only get the explanation or the actual cause of that effect in Name of the Doctor. So, yeah, it, it does have a lot of uh, similarities to uh, Bat Bad Wolf for me. Now, it's interesting when you say we're seeing all these Claras. My take on it is that we, the only time that we saw the Splinter Claras was in Asylum of the Daleks and in um, The Snowman. I, I think everything else has been straightforward in her timeline up until she uh, splinters in Name of the Doctor. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, I think you have to look at it from that viewpoint, that anything you can't explain without the benefit of time travel with regards to Clara, you, you have to say that that is a splinter Clara. That's why most of the Claras we've been seeing have been in modern times. I think Tom said last week uh, during the wrap-up episode that um, Clara goes on an adventure every Wednesday with the Doctor. He, hmm. he turns up, he whisks her away. But then we see, like, the Asylum of the Daleks Clara and the Snowman Clara, and they have to be splinters. They, they really have to be. So it's a nice way of explaining it and adding a little bit of mystery to the show too, I think. You know, it's interesting. Another parallel that you can make with Rose and Bad Wolf is that in, in that finale, really it was Rose that solved the problem. Ro Rose resolved the threat uh, with, when she came back uh, as the Bad Wolf. And here it was Clara. The doctor could do nothing. He was incapacitated on the floor there, and it was all up to Clara, which has been very much a trend that I have seen this season. You want to take a guess at how many episodes in the 7B half of the season where the Doctor actually had a significant role in resolving? Ooh. I love quiz questions like this that. Is your but quiz. I'll, I'll quickly... Uh, well, I, I can't give you an answer, but I'll give you a different take on it. It's something that I noticed during the Eccleston months as well, that... Rose was usually the solver of the problem rather than the Doctor. The Doctor was there and he had input into it, but often it wasn't him that saved the day. And, and that's a big problem I had during the Eccleston months, that um, even though we have a show called Doctor Who, is really a series about the companion. And I think that's something that's been throughout the entire new series run, that uh, you know the Doctor is the companion and the companion is the Doctor, or, or, or the main title character, I suppose. But tell me, Michelle, how many stories did we see Clara make a difference as compared to the Doctor making a difference and saving the day? Well, just quickly, uh, in Akatan, Clara saved the day with her leaf. I mean, the Doctor just kind of had that standoff with the, the planet monster. Uh, in Cold War, it was Clara that talked down Skeldak by reminding him of his daughter. Uh, in, uh, in Journey, I mean, we had the, the big friendly button. I don't think that really counts as anybody saving the day. <laughs> uh, in Crimson Horror, it was the Paternoster gang that did, did most everything. Well, Clara put the, uh, the chair in the works to, to stop 
the mechanism for a while, and then it was Jenny and Vastra who stole the poison off the rocket, and it was Strax who uh, shot the villain off the stairs. Uh, Silver Nightmare, it was the Emperor that solved the day after being recognized by, by the kid. And uh, name of the doctor, we've got Clara giving her life, jumping into the doctor's time stream. As far as I can tell, that only leaves two stories. Uh, I think you could argue that in Bells, the doctor had a major role in terms of figuring out the technology and, you know, sending his own mm. spoonhead. And I think in um, oh, oh, Hyde, the doctor, again, did kind of some technological stuff and recognize that the ghost wasn't a ghost. So two out of eight by my count, and I know they're probably arguable, but this this season, frankly, like the last season for me and just for me, seemed to be less than the sum of its parts. I, I kind of enjoyed most of the episodes as they went by, but when I think of it all as a whole, I, I find that I'm somehow disenchanted. And I think one of the reasons is I feel like I don't have my hero. Just like you were saying, it's supposed to be a show about... Mm. Yeah, yeah. The doctor's supposed to be the protagonist with the companions, and they're supposed to go off doing things proactively. And I feel like the doctor isn't quite the hero he used to be. You know, actually, getting back to what Heiko said, um, that the comparison he did between, you know, doing something that RTD did before, only only maybe doing it better, in his opinion, um, there's some written feedback that kind of covers that a similar topic, and that is from Lisa. Uh, Lisa had a few different points that she made, and in particular, the second point that she made uh, is that Doctor Who is a TV show for children, and she says, so you all have seen every movie or show out there. Remember, kids haven't, and as the Greeks pointed out, there's about 20 or something stories, so back off the complaining that you think you've seen it before. You are an adult. Boy, she doesn't know you very well. You are no, an <laughs> not at all. <laughs> You haven't hung out with the fellows in the camper van lately, but um, <laughs> you are an adult. You have seen it all. Sorry to inform you of the obvious. This is what happens when you grow up. You have had experiences. Uh, so I just think it's inter interesting that she's calling us out for saying, oh, well, this is just like that, or this is just like that, or we've seen this before in that movie, or we've seen it before in another movie. Whereas, you know, we had Heiko who was saying, we've seen it before, but isn't it great how we're seeing it again this time? I do kind of agree with what Lisa says. I mean, I, I, I do understand what she means. I mean, you know, the difference between when we were kids and watching Doctor Who in the 70s is very different now. You know, there's another 30 or 40 years of pop culture that, uh, you know, the modern series can reference on. So I suppose it's difficult for a writer or a production team or a showrunner to create a new story that isn't similar or even directly exactly the same as something that's already been made. All I'll say is that I think we've tried to keep to a minimum that sort of comment from our perspective. But I think what I'm trying to get across is that, yeah, sure, we as reviewers have seen that before, and we may mention it occasionally, but I think that should also be applied to the production team. They're old, they're, they're wise, they've spent a long time on this earth. Um, they should realise that they're creating this scene that looks like exactly something from Empire Strikes Back, or, the, or they've taken a plot point straight from Back to the Future. Yeah, so for me, it's, it's more the fault of the production team not giving us more original stories and relying on the classic tropes that have worked already, but that can be to its downfall. Let, let's get out there and create some new ideas, some, some new memes in Doctor Who that you know, the production team in 20 years' time can steal from. And and I'm actually with Lisa on this one to a large extent, too. As I listen to the podcast sometimes, um, I don't... When I watch the show, 
I am rarely thinking about all the, the things that it would remind me of or that it's building or that it has done before. I'm usually right in the moment with the show, and I don't mind hearing a story told or retold, so long as it's told well. I mean, you know, maybe there are a limited number of themes that, that exist in storydom, but uh, if, if it's told well, you can tell me the story over and over again with different characters and different casts. I think a theme of a story is very different to a plot point or or the way a uh, idea is used in the show. I, I agree, there are only a very limited amount of themes. You know, there's only a certain amount of things you can do. I mean, we've had 50 years of base under stage stories, for example, and, and we had our own example in this mini-season with Cold War, and people were unashamedly happy about that. They didn't mind that Cold War was so similar to a lot of Patrick Troughton based under siege stories. But I think where the the show falls down is when it starts copying scenes and plot points from famous movies. Uh, that's where I think it stumbles. When it starts reminding you of Back to the Future and Empire Strikes Back and Star Trek and stuff like that, that's where I think it fails. And, and I think that's something the production team should pick up on. Well, let's move beyond just Name of the Doctor at this point and, and perhaps move into a broader look at Series 7B or the, the second half of Series 7. Uh, we've got a couple of folks who have, have sent in their thoughts uh, about the different episodes from the whole series. So how about we start with Luke from L.A.? Series 7B sucks, plain and simple. I don't blame the actors who did the best they could with the half-baked plot lines and lame dialogue the writers spewed out for this half-season. The visual effects have been excellent, however, there have been some very funny one-liners, and the nods to the classic series were much appreciated by this Doctor Who fan. But as someone who grew up loving the classic series for its well-crafted stories and lovable characters, Series 7B represents the worst of what New Who has become. Matt Smith was fresh in his first year, but by now his cutesy-wootsy antics have worn thin. I have no interest in or sympathy for Clara, whose character seems not to be human at all. She's the impossible girl, all right. Impossible to stomach, that is. This season ruined my Ice Warriors forever, continued to portray my Santarans as emasculated clowns, and, worst of all, continued to downgrade my beloved Cybermen. Dear Doctor Who, please stop tinkering with my Cybermen. Just let them be the cold, super-strong badasses with a gold allergy they were in the 1970s and 80s, with the exception of Hyde, which I consider an outstanding and original sci-fi take on a spooky ghost story. Series 7B has been an exhibition of mediocrity, a parade of lackluster stories, and a detriment to the Doctor Who ethos. That brings me to the season finale, The Name of the Doctor. Although I didn't love the story per se, or find it a satisfactory conclusion to the great intelligence menace, I will admit that Stephen Moffat has ingeniously set up his 50th anniversary special, which could seamlessly connect the classic and new series, answer all our burning questions about the Time War, and set the stage for many more years of Doctor Who. The Name of the Doctor, therefore is not one of my favorite episodes. It is, nevertheless, one of the most important as it relates to the Doctor Who series as a whole. I am hopeful that Moffat will come through with a brilliant anniversary special. Then my disappointment in Series 7B will be forgiven and forgotten. Los Angeles, USA, out. Well, thanks, Luke, for your feedback, mate. I, I think you would have what would, would be regarded as a very controversial opinion with regards to 7B. You are certainly going against the flow of considered fan opinion. Um, sure, Doctor Who looks great. It's got fantastic nods to the classic series, but then you really start launching into it, I suppose, similar to what I was during this mini-season. I, I love your phrase, exhibition of mediocrity. Um, 
I, that's a phrase I think I'm going to start using myself. Uh, but yes, it does set it up well for the 50th anniversary. I, I think we've got a lot to look forward to. All I'm hoping is that um, the production team delivers. I really do. I'm agreed here, and, and uh, boy, we probably need Tom on this episode to counterbalance us, but uh, I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I did not dislike it as much as, as Luke did. I wouldn't go so far as to say the season sucked. There's actually a lot that was that was good in there, but uh, like I said, the overall, it, it just didn't do it for me like I was hoping it would. Now, one point that I do want to pick up that he makes, I mean, he, he talks about, you know, they, they ruined his ice warriors, the Santarans are clowns, they downgraded the Cybermen. Um as I think back on all the updates that they have done to classic era monsters during the Moffat era, I'm kind of in agreement with Luke. There are very few of them that I think, just in my opinion, uh, have improved the monsters. Uh, you know, I, I thought we had really good Daleks earlier in New, in, in New Doctor Who, uh, and then we got the victory of the Daleks, Daleks. And um, the, I haven't been that excited about the Cybermen. I don't know what Ian has against stompy Cybermen, because I always loved (laughs) those great big, huge, monstrous Cybermen that were, that stomped on you practically. I I always thought that was tremendously uh, intimidating and scary. I think uh, it wasn't so much that for Ian. It it, it was more that we'd already seen in the episode, we'd seen, you know, the uh, Speed Racer Cybermen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instantly upgrade and start zipping around and then suddenly we get back to the lazy writing at the end of the episode where we have millions and millions of them just going stop 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 <laughs> when, when they could have done what they did at the beginning and the whole and, story and would be over in about two and a half seconds yeah but i'm actually completely with ian on this idea that if you make them that invincible where do you go from here maybe i'm protective of the cybermen in that i'd like to see them mm. con- i'd like to see them continue to be a returning character i really am fond of the cybermen and i'd like to see them continuing to come back again and again as a repeat monster but i i don't know where you go from here if you make them as invincible yeah. as they were in in uh, Nightmare and Silver, um, but and then uh, you know I'm in agreement. Strax is a great character; he's lovable and he's wonderful. But oh. that's not where. But that's not where I wanted. Lovable. My, but I, that's not lovable. where. Lovable. Hey, <laughs> that's not lovable. Where, he is. He's cute. <laughs> but I didn't really think cute and lovable was where I ever expected a Santaran to go. No, no one did. That's the problem. <laughs> That's the big problem. I well, mean, let, and I let's agree. Create a, let's create. Let's create a new character that's slightly militarified, but is a total buffoon. Let's not just devalue every single Sontaran story since 1973 with this Strax character. That I, I, I still don't like him. I really don't. I, I don't understand why the Sontaran race would even have medical staff. I really, really don't. Well, and, and I agree because he's a cute character he's a, a fun character but he's not really a Santaran or not what a Santaran should no. be so so when I think about you know the only upgrades I've I've liked the Silurians I, I like what the, what the Moffat era did with the Silurians and uh you know and the great intelligence that's kind of a neat one to see brought back but pretty much every other creature that has gotten the treatment within the last few years the ice warriors I really loved the new suit I didn't care for the golem creature that came out of the suit. Mm, and, 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 mm. and for me, they violated their own uh, kind of values mm. within the world they created because they said, you know, here, this is this hero uh, of, of the, of the uh, where are they? <laughs> this hero of the ice warrior race. And, and honor is such a big part of the ice warriors, but that doctor says, oh, for him to leave his suit, that would, that's a terrible dishonor. Well, 
why would the hero do that? I mean, he's stuck on a spaceship with a bunch of very vulnerable human beings. I, I just don't, I just don't get that. So, um, any rate, I'll stop ranting. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, while I don't think the whole series was terrible, and I think a lot of the stories were were relatively enjoyable, if flawed. Um, you know what I'm worried about is the Zygons. Because I love the Zygons, and what are they going to what are they going to do to the Zygons? <laughs> I think it's something James has said too um, when he when he was on the show recently. It's it's not that James sort of said that all the stories were pretty much universally average, and I think he even harked back to when uh, Matt Smith had those stellar shows at the beginning of series six. I mean, we had uh, the Impossible Astronaut, for example. You know that 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 first two part story. I mean, those were so good you could almost excuse that the story that followed it. Curse of the Black Panther or Spot or whatever it was called, um, that there were clunkers in every season, but there were other such fantastic stories surrounding it that you could almost get away with it. But I think season 7B for me, none have really risen to the top of the pile. You know, they've, you know, they've all been floating at the same level, maybe with the exception of Name of the Doctor. So when we do see, in my opinion, some below average stories like Hyde, like Rings of Akatan that are just quite dire, then it brings the average of the whole season down even more for me. Our next bit of feedback from Michaela in Derby, who's who's written some very interesting comments. And I'm just going to dive straight into this. Love the show, but please tell Tom to stop loving everything. It's not possible to love every second of Doctor Who, as he seems to, and so much dilutes his opinion, which is just 50 shades of positivity. Have some guts to say when you don't like something. Love Trev. I always picture him as the grouch from Sesame Street and James as the poor lag having to maintain some kind of balance. For some reason, it all fits together nicely. (laughs) Thank you, Michaela. (laughs) Well, well, you a little known secret of the Doctor Who podcast camper van is that there is a garbage can specifically for Trev just out back. I do be, yeah. behind behind yeah. the camper van, and and uh, Trev, I think you need to brush some of those snuffleupagus hairs off of your suit today. <laughs> and I think it ties in with Doctor Who too because uh, the Grouch's trash can was always bigger on the inside than the out. So <laughs> me, me and the Grouch, we're both Time Lords. Hmm. You've just reinforced that point, Michaela. Thank you very much. Well, having talked about grouches, let's move on to Gareth from somewhere. Not that he's a grouch, but he happens to uh, have a comment about the story that was not only my least favorite story of 7B, but possibly my least favorite story of 50 years of Doctor Who. Uh, So let's see. Gareth says, just to point out to the disappointment of the back office of the TARDIS that it wasn't as grand or looked as expected, surely the point is that it could change the architecture and look different every episode. This leaves it open for a journey to the center of the TARDIS, part two. Oh, please, no. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. No, we've got our journey to the center of the TARDIS now, ladies and gentlemen. We've been crying out for it for many years, many, many, many years, ever since we saw the uh, wardrobe in the TARDIS during the uh, Tenet era. We've been waiting for them to venture into the back rooms, and we've got it. And we have to accept that the modern interpretation of the TARDIS innards is a dark, foreboding, unwelcoming, grimy type of place. Um, Now, that's probably also explained a little bit by what the TARDIS was going through at the time. So maybe there could be an avenue there to visit a fully functional, healthy TARDIS. But I I think if we did another story like that, 
you know, the fans would be saying, well, why are we doing this again? We've already done it. Yeah, if there was one story that I could just remove from canon, it would be this one of everything I've ever seen from Doctor Who. And it's because uh, I was, I mean, one of the accusations is that some of us maybe had our hopes too high, but uh, the TARDIS is supposed to be this wondrous machine. And for me, the TARDIS Mm. has always been one of my very favorite things about the entire show. Uh, And then to get a nightmare world populated by monsters and the doctor yelling at his companion who has done nothing wrong. And it it was just, it it really was a nightmare. This is the one that should have had nightmare in the title. Um, Oh, and I did, having watched it a second time, took me a long time to be willing to even go back and look at it a second time. But having watched it a second time, um, I think, Gareth, that you do have a point, that the TARDIS was essentially wrecked. This was not the TARDIS as a healthy TARDIS. This was not the TARDIS as its best. And perhaps the innards that we saw were, were reflecting that. And, and like Trev says, maybe in a different context, it would be a more bright, wondrous, inviting, exciting TARDIS that that one would want to travel the universe in and that one would want to live in. But uh, I was just so mm, disgusted with what they did with the TARDIS Mm. that, um, oh, I couldn't stand this one. And and I I so very rarely have that negative a response. But two-thirds, half two-thirds of the way through this episode, I thought, you know, my goodness, I, I, I don't understand what's going on. And if I wasn't a Doctor Who fan already, I would turn this off. I mean, I got to thinking, if I if I didn't have all these years of Doctor Who fandom and of uh, association with the show, if I were flipping through channels this season, but especially that episode, would I get captivated like I did back in the 80s? Would, would, would I stick with this? <laughs> Probably not with some of what we had this season. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 interesting. And, and I'll just say, Michelle, if I didn't know you any better, I thought you would have been reading one of my old scripts using words like disgusted and <laughs> removed from canon. My goodness, those are the sort of things that come out of my mouth, not yours. I, I'm, I'm sitting here holding onto my chair because I'm about to fall off in shock. But um, I think it's something that certainly the Moffat era has captured and something that modern TV and film does. I mean, everyone... I mean, look... Let's just look at some of the stuff that we've used as running themes in modern Doctor Who. I mean, we spent a whole season talking about the death of the Doctor. We've spent a whole season talking about a companion dying multiple times. Modern audiences, I think, are conditioned, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, to find interest in these essentially negative, very, very grim storylines. And they are interested maybe from some, I don't know, sort of hopeful point of view, that they will have a wonderful resolution at the end. Even when we get to the end, it's still pretty dire. I mean, let's let's just look at the events of Name of the Doctor, that, you know, we still essentially have Clara dying for the sake of the Doctor. Um, there's, there's, there's no real happy ending in Name of the Doctor, really. No, and, and for a character that we were told was going to take a lower profile, here we are at the culmination of the season... Once again, the Doctor's name and the Doctor's tomb are the ultimate danger to the universe, and it's all about the Doctor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I I think Doctor Who, well, for me, and I know others disagree, but for me, Doctor Who is at its best when it's inspirational. I just found it depressing much of the yeah. time, the la- not just this season, but last season, with, with bright spots in it. And again, each individual episode, the journey to the center of the TARDIS is the only episode I didn't like. I know it might not sound that way from what I'm saying, but it, it is the only episode that I actively disliked. Uh, everything else, as I rewatched it within the last 10 days, 
was pretty enjoyable. So I, I know I'm, I'm giving mixed messages. <laughs> Our next bit of feedback is from Jeff, who also lives in somewhere. So I'm wondering whether Gareth and Jeff have ever met. But anyway, Jeff says, just listen to your, as always, excellent podcast and I'm breathing a sigh of relief that others also found Nightmare and Silver very disappointing. It is strange. Online people are making excuses for it, perhaps because of who the author is. I've watched it three times now, desperately trying to prove myself wrong. And as always, it improves on rewatch, but not enough. The, the story isn't particularly coherent. I gave it the lowest score of the Moffat era. Maybe the director had something to do with it not working. Yeah, uh, Jeff, I, I think that's something that we've talked about on the cast before. I mean, Tom has maybe mentioned that uh, last year's or, or last season's The Doctor's Wife was a more pure Neil Gaiman story and that we had uh, the director's hand in Nightmare and Silver, but then other people are saying, no, the Nightmare and Silver story is a more pure Gaiman story and Stephen Moffat's hands are in The Doctor's Wife story. It, it's hard to know which side to come down on. I, I, I suppose it depends what you really feel about Neil Gaiman and what you feel about Nightmare and Silver as a whole. Well, I know nothing about Neil Gaiman except for what I've seen in the universe of Doctor Who, and I liked this one better than the rest of the camper van. I, uh, this, I, I, actually, <laughs> <laughs> I actually quite enjoyed, aside from the fact that I didn't like what they did with the Cybermen, and yes, uh, the, the subplot with the kids uh, was needed help, uh, but I really liked what I saw as the central uh, kind of plot line and storyline, which was the Emperor... Uh, having to, you know, come out of hiding and take his place again and take his responsibility. Uh, I liked the fact that I, uh, maybe liked isn't the right word, but I didn't clue into the fact that he was the emperor. And yet, when I go back and watch the episode, the clues are there. They're there in two or three different places. And so it's not just a deus ex machina at the end. Uh, they're there. And I, when the reveal came of who he was, I almost thought, well, shame on you, Michelle, for not Considering that, I felt like I learned something about myself and about uh, not not writing off characters. Uh, I think you I I think you're doing a very harsh disservice on yourself, Michelle. I mean, it's very easy to go back and rewatch it and go, ah, that's where it was, and kick yourself you didn't fix it up, and kick yourself you didn't pick it up the first time. Um, I've watched it two or three times myself. I don't know why, but I've watched it <laughs> two or three times, and I still don't pick up on that. Now, I'm not sure what to make of that, but. Yeah, I, I don't think the story's that subtle that there's stuff there on rewatch and you can go, ah, that's what it was all about. It's, it's all up there on screen the first time you watch it. It's just not a satisfying story. Well, back to our last bit of audio feedback for this episode. Mark from the U of K. Hello to the DWP, Mark here, and I thought I'd do a little season roundup for you. Asylum. Tasty morsels of Doctor Who, leaving us wanting more. Exciting the fan without annoying the casual viewer. Dinos on a spaceship. Annoying robots, pat ending, forgettable. A Town Called Mercy. Love this one, epic western. Power of Three. Forgettable filler. Angels Take Manhattans. Gaping logical flaws. The Snowmen. Good for a Christmas episode, but why is the Doctor on a cloud? Since when a cloud's solid? On to the Bells of St. John. Disappointing, though it had some good elements. Rings of Akatan. Yes, Clara's governess's traits were shown with the little girl, but there was a missed opportunity for her to scold the Doctor's rude pointing that I would have liked to have seen. Cold War. Some logical flaws to do with the space available on a submarine, but generally I loved it. Would have loved it even more if we'd never seen the Ice Warrior out of his shell. Hyde. 
Nice enough story, a little too neat and tidy really. And what was the purpose behind the great 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 grandparents thing? Journey to the centre of the TARDIS. It was enjoyable at the time, but it was a bit of a wasted opportunity. The big reset button was a cheeky nod to the fans. It was ultimately rather rubbish though, disappointing. The Crimson Horror. I did enjoy this. I was comfortable with the apparently changing flexibility of Red Doctor. I imagined his skin to be crusty and stiff. Not impossible to move, but very painful to do so. And so he found himself most comfortable when he returned to his basic scream with arms outstretched pose. Nightmare in Silver. It was a good start, but the ending was poor. There should have only ever been one active Cyberman on screen with the threat of more on the horizon. The name of the Doctor. Lots to chew on. River seems to have somehow gone away from being active in the Doc's life. The Doctor knows that she's gone, she's no longer accessible to him, but he's already dealt with her many times since her death in the library. What changed from being able to do that to making it too painful for, to deal with her? I really didn't understand that. Thank you. Well, Mark, thank you for that comprehensive look at the entire season. Uh, neat way to go through all of them. And I want to, you know, you finished with Name of the Doctor, of course, and specifically kind of puzzling over River and the Doctor's uh, relationship in that. You're right. It certainly seems like they have not seen each other for a long time. And obviously the version of River that would have been left in the library, of course, hadn't hadn't seen him since he was left. But, but you definitely get the feeling that he hasn't been visiting... Um, you know, the river from earlier in his timeline, that the one that he married, uh, very much either. And I almost feel like this may be a little bit of clumsy storytelling. Um, if you go back to the previous season, I mean, on the DVD for season six, they had those little series of, you know, Night in the TARDIS uh, episodes. And there was one last night that clearly showed the last time that the Doctor would see River. Now, if that had been shown as a part of this season 7B somewhere after uh, Angels Take Manhattan, because at the end of Angels Take Manhattan, he and River are together, and there's no indication that, that they aren't going to continue to see each other. I think if you put last night somewhere after that, then it explains why there has been this gap and why he hasn't revisited River. But obviously that's not the way it played out on our television screen, so... I think it's nice that we get the closure with the River Song story and, and again, that moment where he takes... Do we? Do we really? Mm. Do we really? What about that knowing wink at the end and spoilers? River Song will return. <laughs> you think so? I think so. I, I think there's more to the River Song arc. I mean, especially we've still got the Matt Smith Doctor there and especially what almost seemed like a reconciliation and almost an, an apology to each other in Name of the Doctor. I think there's more to the River Song arc. I, I don't think it's going to be a major part of the next season. I'd, I'd be surprised if she was there in the anniversary, for example. But I think there's more to it. When she said spoilers about what's going to happen in the 11th Doctor's future, uh, yeah, she's coming back, no doubt about it. Hmm. Well, I guess we'll have to watch and see. I, I got the impression this felt much more like a... A final closure and if it isn't then it kind of makes it an even stranger sequence even though it was a really good sequence I really enjoyed it but uh, 
Okay, so Mark, we may not have an answer for you. Before we leave Name of the Doctor completely, let, let's get one more written feedback in. This one's from Dean from Salem. He says, I've been listening to and enjoying the podcast for several months now. See, there are people that enjoyed us this season, Trev. A couple, a couple, <laughs> yeah, but, but they live in Salem and they have pitchforks, so they probably don't care. <laughs> because then he goes on to say, it's always good to listen even when I disagree. Dean, you're not allowed to disagree. I know you're new to the podcast, but... that's one of the terms and conditions you have to click on when you download the mp3 so he says i'm still wondering about the tom baker episode when a technician from the doctor's home planet who knew him back at the academy called him by his name used at the academy what episode was that okay trev here's your quiz question what do you know about that oh that that has to be uh our, our dear mate drax from the armageddon factor surely I'm going to get vilified by every U of K resident, but our mate Drax had a really, really slangy, down-to-earth accent, which I, I'm sure one of our listeners will be able to tell me exactly what part of the U of K it comes from. But yeah, he, he went to the academy with, with the Doctor. And oh, I can't remember the, the nickname oh, that Drax oh, had for the Doctor. You know, Trev, for full, for full points on this, you're going to have to get both. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, do you, do you need help? I, I need some help. Mr. Quizmaster. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about Armageddon Factor Part Six, and the nickname was mm-hmm. was Theta Sigma. Oh, of course. And and just a, a little more uh, trivia related to that. You know, uh, going back to River Song, uh, you know how she calls him Sweetie. Hello, Sweetie. Remember in mm-hmm. the, remember in the Pandorica opens on the Diamond Cliffs how she had written Hello, Sweetie, but not in English. The first two char- mm-hmm. the first two characters on the cliff that says, hello, sweetie, are the Greek letters Theta Sigma. Are they really? Mm-hmm. Are they really? Oh, well, there you go. And I should have remembered it, too, because um, Theta Sigma's mentioned during Happiness Patrol, too, when he meets Trevor Sigma, the uh, census person. He says, oh, my nickname was Theta Sigma. So it's been mentioned three times now, <laughs> and I didn't remember one of them. And at that point, it's called a nickname. So we kind of, again, I think a little bit of retconning that, oh, no, 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 we didn't give away the doctor's name in the Armageddon Factor. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, this whole idea of the doctor's name has been around for uh, quite some time. So so his name's Nick. Nick. <laughs> nickname, yes. Nick. <laughs> oh, dear, dear. Well, let's leave... Uh, our listeners with one last bit of feedback it's a bit of written feedback again from the from from the lovely country of germany uh janet in munich and janet says what a warm and welcoming beginning to your podcast it strikes a chord every time just in case you really mean me well thank you very very much in spite of being classic who old at 64 i love new who too and enjoy every dwp like i'm still behind the sofa of yore keep up the good work much appreciated and all the best. And she says, Janet, age over 60, under 1,000, sadly no regenerations yet. So, <laughs> and, and yes, Janet, you're absolutely right. We do mean you when we say, and you are most we do. welcome. Absolutely. We do. Well, I think at the end of that mammoth bit of uh, feedbackiness, that's brought us to the end of another Doctor Who podcast, Michelle. As always, every single time, it's a pleasure to have you here. I, I love going through the feedback with you because you provide such a wonderful balance to my um, grouchiness, as it were. I'm not sure I was so balanced this time, but it's been great. Also, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I might have to make some room in the old trash can for you as well. Yeah, okay. yeah, right. move over. <laughs> All right, well, until we meet again, don't know where, don't know when, we'll talk to you again in another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. So, bye-bye for now. That was the Doctor Who Podcast. 
which you can find at the doctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at the doctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. 